Welcome back to series three of the Mother Worldly podcast, which is all about books and um, writing them and reading them and not writing them and not reading them, as I've said several times now, and you might be getting bored of hearing. Um, today, I have got um, somebody to talk to who is um, most definitely the, the longest established, most established author that we've had on the show so far. Lucinda Hawksley is a prolific writer, mainly but not exclusively of historical biographies, and is the great, great, great granddaughter of Charles Dickens himself, as well as being the author of books about how women got the vote and Queen Victoria's mysterious daughter Louise. She's an art historian, public speaker, and a lover of Wales, the creature, not the country. Hi, Lucinda. Hello. How did I do? Really well. Yes, and I, I love the fact that you said the creature, not the country. Uh, not that I have anything against Wales, the country, I must add. But, uh, cetaceans are one of my passions, yes. Love them. Whales, dolphins, porpoises, anywhere in the world I can get to go and visit them. Obviously not right now. What is it about whales and dolphins and porpoises that you love so much? They are just the most incredible creatures. They're really intelligent. They have such interesting kind of biology. Their, their migration's fascinating the way that they, they kind of work together in groups. Basically, if we had a parliament of dolphins instead of a parliament of people, I think life would be so much easier. It'd certainly be entertaining, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and <there's laughs> something I would say anyone who hasn't been whale watching should go once we can all travel again. It's the most extraordinary experience. And yeah, it will change your life. Have you written about whales? I've written a couple of articles about whales, but I haven't ever written a book about whales. But I did edit one of, when I was a book editor. My first job after university, I edited the most amazing book by um, a man called Mark Hawardine, who is a zoologist who's been on TV quite a lot. And he wrote a guide to whales, dolphins and porpoises. It was my absolute dream job. And it's still in print, which is great. Were you already a lover of whales at that point or was this the turning oh, yeah. point? No, lifelong love. I think it was when my granny took me to the Natural History Museum when I was about five. And I saw the big life-size model of a blue whale and that just began it. And also I had a very sweet primary school teacher when I was about five or six, Sister Camillus. And she used to play us at the end of every school day, just after story time, she'd play us the song of the humpback whale. On vinyl, obviously. <laughs> and um, it was so amazing. And I think those two things just sparked this love of whales. Oh, how lovely. Um, I'm interested in the fact that you started as an editor because I was thinking I, I've not spoken to anybody from the publishing industry itself. Um, I've only been talking to people who actually got their pen in their hand and wrote the books um, or tried to. So would you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd always wanted to be a writer. So for me, getting a job in publishing was was absolutely what I wanted to do. And I left university with an English degree. And initially, I had actually been training to be a, a teacher. And I'd wanted to be a teacher and write books in the holidays. And then two years of undergrad teacher training made me, apologies for everyone listening, really dislike parents, not the children. <laughs> <laughs> so depressing how many children have miserable, unhappy home lives. And that just to me, you know, was what really stopped me wanting to be a teacher. And I still wanted to be a writer, but I had an English degree all of a sudden. I didn't have my teaching degree and what was I going to do? And book publishing was a great way in. Um, it was so good to have had that grounding as an editor. I worked for Dorling Kindersley, which was a wonderful start um, before they got bought by, by Pearson when they were still an independent company. And they would send us off on editorial courses, which when I look at most books published today, I realise does not happen anymore. Um, most editing now I find deeply frustrating and I feel very lucky that I worked for DK actually that they really sent us off on fantastic 
editorial courses and I had a wonderful kind of older editors who, who steered me and that's been a huge help to me in my writing as well. You can't really edit your own work, you can get to a certain point, but I urge anybody who's going to self-publish to pay a professional editor, please, please don't self-publish anything without getting someone else to look at it. Even if you're a brilliant editor yourself, you cannot edit your own writing because you're too familiar with it. You, you anticipate what you expect to be there rather than what actually is on the page. Um, but it's a great grounding to have and it's good to have that knowledge of the publishing industry, which has changed a huge amount um, since the 90s when I was working in editing. So this is why your writing is so sharp. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, are you, you said you're frustrated um, that they clearly don't send people on editing courses nowadays. Is that as a writer or as a reader? Um, both, particularly as a reader. Yeah, and the number of times I've read a novel which I've loved and then it's had a really weak ending. And that is actually something that the editor should look at very closely. And I know from talking to agents and other writers that most editors now, um, they're not expected necessarily to, to be an editor, as it were. It's more kind of a production role. And agents tell me how frustrated they are that they are now their author's editors and that publishing companies with a new author will usually say, oh, well, we're not taking it on until they've it's been edited they don't do the editing in-house so much anymore talking about fiction here mm -hmm. which is deeply frustrating and i think it shows and i read so many books where i just think this was great but why didn't the editor say hmm that was a bit out of character that that character wouldn't have said that or wouldn't have done that or perhaps you need to introduce another element because a really great editor is what helps to make a great book and every writer no matter how good they are really needs a great editor and I find it frustrating that publishing companies have completely denigrated that role. And I've heard so many publishers and designers who seem to think that editing is just a little bit of typing. And actually, if, if you're seriously a good editor, any editors listening to this will know you are the person that makes that book brilliant. Mm, that's fascinating. I've, I have just read um, The Bricks That Built the Houses by Kate Tempest. Well, I haven't read that. It's really good. It's such a good book and it's full of poetry. It's, it's beautiful to read, but the ending is just like, well, let's just wrap everything up now. It's deeply frustrating because there's so many really good books that I've read. Um, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine being a case in point. I absolutely loved it and found the ending mm. really rushed and quite weak. And in fact, so many of my friends have said to me the same thing. Oh, such a good book, but I didn't like the ending. Yeah. And that frustrates me on the author's behalf because if everybody, I mean, I've, I've literally had about 10 people make that comment to me unprompted without me having said my opinion. I think so many people seem to have that feeling. Why on earth didn't the publishers pick up on that? Yeah. And I find that a lot. And yeah, it's, it's for me, that's such a pity because when you, a writer is working so hard, to make a book, a book as good as it could be, they need an editor who's as equally determined and dedicated to it. Can you think of a book that has a brilliant ending? Well, I can think of many books that have brilliant endings, but I'm just trying to, <laughs> well, I mean, Gentleman in Moscow, Amor Towels, I don't know if you've read that one. No, I haven't. Oh, read it, it's one of my favorite books of last year. I loved it so much. I bought it for so many people. Um, a really great novel. And yeah, that just, I thought that was pretty flawless all the way through. I definitely will. I'll go and look for it. I'm doing this. I don't know how many, maybe 10 interviews. I must have taken 
one or two book suggestions from all of them and it's been ridiculous because I'm not spending money on anything I'm not buying coffee so I'm buying books well books. that is music to my ears as an author <laughs> I really want to know that people who've been locked down are definitely buying books because that's what we need them to do I couldn't read for the first weeks I couldn't read at all I just couldn't focus on anything couldn't even watch telly and since the reading clicked back in I've yeah and I've just piled up books everywhere because that was my experience of writing I just couldn't write and really? everyone oh it's all right for you you must be having a great time you know all this writing time but it's the stress and mm -hmm. it, the anxiety made it really hard and in fact I was really beating myself up about it and feeling absolutely useless and then I joined an online society of authors meeting for which I shall be eternally grateful and I joined it just a few minutes late and they were already having a discussion and every writer was saying how difficult they were finding it and how unproductive they were being and it made that I think was what unlocked something for me actually because I felt stopped feeling such a failure I thought oh this is a universal experience and it was actually after that meeting that I started to get my mojo back as it were um, I think most of us just felt utterly bewildered and the the world anxiety was overwhelming yeah absolutely and just being able to create some mental space that isn't immediately filled with all these worries yeah and and even um, you know I've been furloughed for four months I should have written a book but I didn't <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a, I wrote a small contribution to somebody else's book but I couldn't have done that I was just sort of staring into space most of the time I did get frustrated on Twitter with the number of, of people who would say oh I've written a book since I've been furloughed and you think really but also I have to say if you'd written a whole book in four months it may not have been brilliant <laughs> I do appreciate that I have written um, at least two plans for a book. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. Keep going with them. Yeah, no, and I think that there are, you know, there are people who've been able to embrace this, but almost every writer I've spoken to has found this the most unproductive time. And I'm frustrated, but I'm working every day and probably at half my normal output. And I don't know why, because it's not as if I'm doing fewer hours. Just my mind will suddenly wander. I'll start to get stressed. I'll I have to turn my phone onto silent because I'll suddenly get a notification from BBC News and panic. No, um, and yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's not the time and space that I hoped it would be. If I'd looked at this as a kind of abstract idea, you know, no students to teach because I teach overseas students and we don't have any at the moment, obviously, sadly, I would have thought, wonderful, this time and space. Um, frustratingly, I think I need a, a very busy full diary to enable me to get a lot of writing done. That's interesting. Yes. So, and I wonder if if it will go back to that, because life isn't going to be exactly the same as it ever was. No, I do wonder. I mean, I, I keep wondering if we're ever going to go back to it. I keep looking back in history and thinking, you know, they did get beyond the bubonic plague. You know, <laughs> so yeah, get beyond this. You know? But um, yeah, it's it's very frightening, and I just hope all those scientists working on a vaccine are, you know, able come up with one as a historical author have you written about anything similar to this ever well not quite as similar as this because my art history although i do teach art history back to the renaissance most of my writing is actually 18th and 19th century but um you can really see resonances with what would often happen shorter periods but in the 19th century with outbreaks of things like cholera and um, diphtheria and even malaria which is not something people ever associate with 
northern Europe, but there were regular outbreaks of malaria in London, for example. So people who live very near the, the River Thames, which now people in London want riverside properties. You didn't in the 19th century when it was just a stinking mess and disease ridden. So there would be lots of outbreaks. And um, one of the books I wrote is called Bitten by Witch Fever, which is a look at arsenic in the Victorian home. And one of the things that was so interesting when arsenic was being used to colour wallpaper, clothing, um, fabrics, all sorts of things, uh, was even used in food production, would you believe, to give a nice green tinge to your sweets or, or whatever. Very odd. Um, but arsenic green became incredibly popular. But before it was widely recognised that people were succumbing to arsenic poisoning, it was put down to diphtheria because diphtheria was so common and people who lived in small communities if somebody got diphtheria, you just felt like the whole community was going to be wiped out. And in fact, that's why one of the most famous arsenic, wallpaper arsenic um, poisoning cases was discovered was that these four children tragically in one family died of what was believed to be diphtheria, but no other families who lived in very close contact caught it. Um, so therefore it couldn't have been, but the fear around, the hysteria around all these communicable diseases, uh, you know, it was terrifying. And it was a, very prevalent part of life. Um, the Dickens family, uh, the book that I wrote about Charles Dickens' daughter, Katie, the, the family would go on holiday to Broadstairs initially in Kent, and then they would start going, when the children were a bit older, to Boulogne. And one year when they were there, Katie's older sister, Mamie, became very ill with what was interestingly known then as the English cholera. And uh, presumably because, uh, I don't know for certain, but I've assumed it's because the British Raj brought cholera back from India. I, I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's what I've assumed. And um, so it's known as throughout the rest of Europe as the English cholera, and she nearly died. And the whole community, because there was a big British community in France at the time, had to be kind of quarantined. And it was just similar scenes to what we're seeing today. If there was a story that somebody had, had caught the English cholera, other families would just flee. They'd, they'd flee back to England. They'd try to get out of Marseille or Boulogne or Paris or wherever it was. So, you know, we have these kind of instances of quarantining. And in fact, at the beginning of Little Dorrit, Dickens writes about people coming back from Marseille and, and there's talk of quarantine having come back from Asia. So, you know, these things are nothing new. It's just they're new for our lifetime, I think. We're so used to living in a world where travel is very easy and where medical care is brilliant. And so I think we're experiencing just something that a Victorian might have actually found quite normal. Mm, yes, I've been thinking about that, how normal this would have been for our ancestors. Not normal, perhaps, but yes, it, it wouldn't have been such a shock to the system. No, and the idea that if somebody were ill, you would, no matter what the disease, you would, you would keep your family close and you wouldn't be going out and kind of spreading it in the wider community. Um, obviously, people who had to work had no choice. But um, if you think about kind of middle class families, the women of the family would gather and nurse somebody and most middle class women were very good nurses because hospitals were places where you caught diseases and died. So most nursing was done at home. So all the things that we're kind of having to do now, kind of shielding family members who are vulnerable, that kind of thing would have been much more normal in the past. We've been so lucky in Britain with the health service since the 1940s that we've possibly become very blasé and, and very entitled. Yes, um, that's it. That's that, that, I'd love to go back to being blasé and entitled about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're so, we've been so privileged so long. Yeah. And yeah. actually, maybe this is more normal and a, a, a real human condition that we should understand. Yes. I mean, if you look back at the Renaissance, you know, the early Renaissance then has this gap of about a century before the high Renaissance starts. And that's because Europe closed down from the Black Death. Um, 
And that really was just a kind of lost century in terms of art, art history, because there were other things going on, but whole communities just having to close down. And to me, that's really interesting that we're you know, thinking in terms of, you know, a few months is absolutely terrifying for us, but in the past, it could have been decades. Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's hope it's not decades. Oh, well, I hope not. <laughs> it's kind of feels like decades already. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I was going to ask you more about your um, writing in terms of your process and things like that. Um, you have a lot of books under your belt. Yeah, well, I find, for, for example, with, I've written three biographies and other historic books. And with all of those, what I find is my absolute friend is a timeline, which is my kind of master document. So what I will do is when I start researching a subject, I will just jot down in a Word document every single date that I found and what significant thing happened on that date. And that to me is something I refer to all the time when I'm writing. And it's the most essential part of my writing process in terms of trying to keep all the facts in order. And it's, it's a lovely document to go back to because you can really look at that kind of skeleton of somebody's life and how it evolves. So I start with the, the most basic things, you know, birth and death date, you know, parents' birth and death date, marriage dates, birth of siblings, um, when they started school, if they started school, who their teachers were, um, when they're for, well, all three of my biographies are of artists. So Lizzie Siddle was a pre-Raphaelite model, but also an artist. And then Katie Dickens, or Kate Perugini was her art, art name, her married name, um, was a portrait painter. And then Princess Louise was a sculptor. So all of their kind of exhibition dates that I can find, things like that. I've also done quite a lot of work on Dickens himself. So I've done a book about him and then a book about um, him and his circle, which was plotting a lot of his friends and family Um, And then looking at um, Dickens and Christmas, which was really fun. And actually, that was quite an interesting one, because I thought it was going to be quite a short time frame to plot Dickens and Christmas, because he didn't just write a Christmas carol. He wrote five Christmas books, which most people don't know at all, but he wrote five Christmas books, but over a, a a few years, and then he wrote lots of short stories. But actually, when I started to look at it, I was looking, of course, at all his childhood Christmases and then the other writers who'd influenced him, people like Washington Irving, the uh, American writer, and actually it stretched right the way back and I ended up spending a lot of time at the new newspaper archives and um, looking up tr- Christmas traditions, stretching all the way back to his kind of parents and grandparents' childhood. So the problem with writing history is once you start delving into it, you can't stop. And there, there's never a kind of stopping point, it's, which is, which is a love and joy and a curse when you're trying to write a book. I was just thinking that rabbit holes must be an occupational hazard. <laughs> always uh, and, and, and other books grow out of them so I um my first two biographies were on Lizzie Siddle and and Kate Perugini Katie Dickens um and they both got commissioned around the same time and I'd been working on proposals for both of them for some time and through writing those was when the idea for the Princess Louise book was born because she just kept popping up I didn't know who she was I didn't realize she was one of Victoria's daughters I actually thought she must be a foreign princess because she was constantly hanging out at bohemian studio parties and friends with Whistler and, and visiting Dante Rossetti when everyone else thought he was mad and were avoiding him and and I just thought she was this really cool woman I thought maybe she was you know from Germany or somewhere and then I realized that she was one of Queen Victoria's daughters and her story just begged to be told because she just kept popping up in my research and then through doing those three all of whom had a significant role in some way whether intentionally or or just by action um, with the suffrage movement when my publisher said would I write a book on the suffragettes I said actually I'd rather write a book on the suffrage movement because the suffragettes are actually a very small 
movement, the word suffragette doesn't even come in until 1906. And the suffrage movement had been going on for so long before the suffragette, the kind of militant suffrage um, fighters came along. They were all known as suffragists. And, and that was like, where do we start? Do we start with Bodicea or Boudicca, I think? I'm, I've just shown my age, Boudicca, I think. <laughs> Um, well, you know, where do we start from? So I ended up starting with Mary Wollstonecraft in the 1790s, writing her book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, and looking at the process of the women's movement all the way through the kind of long 19th century, as it's known, um, which goes, um, they call it that term because it kind of begins, obviously, with 1800, but doesn't really end until the First World War in 1914. But then women didn't get the vote until after the First World War, and that was only a few women in 1918. So the British women's suffrage movement had been going on for so much longer than in most other countries and was resolved so much later than most other countries. It's a deeply frustrating thing to see. And but it was really through writing these three biographies and seeing the different role that suffrage played in their lives or that they played in it that made me think, gosh, there's so many stories. And also so many stories of the men who took part in it, who had always forgotten the kind of men who stood by their wives, girlfriends, sisters, mothers, who are always unfairly forgotten. And I just thought this whole idea of the suffrage movement for me was fascinating. And apart from Charles Dickens, you have mainly written about women, I think. Yes, um, and that's actually not for lack of trying. I really would love to write a biography of the pre-Raphaelite artist, Simeon Solomon, who to me is one of the most intriguing artists. Um, I have completely failed over many years to find a publisher. And I know other people apparently have actually tried to sell a biography of him. And I don't understand why, because his story is so extraordinary. He was a, a gay Jewish man in Victorian Britain who um, completely lost his reputation when it was discovered that he was gay. And yet lived this extraordinary life. He lived on the streets for a while. Um, but having been fated as a young man, as this genius and this kind of incredible man who was going to change the, the world of art, through his sexuality and as well the anti-Semitism at the time, the combination of the two was just a complete disaster. I did actually find a gay Jewish publisher in America who I hoped might publish, even he said no. So oh. and the story is just so amazing. He's such an incredible figure. So um, I don't know why the world isn't ready for Simeon yet, but uh, he's keep there, trying. I'll keep trying. Who knows, maybe when I'm 90, mm. if someone else hasn't been given the, the contract by then. <laughs> well, let, let's hope you get it. <laughs> Thank you. Though writing biography, I have to say, is such a, a long task. You spend so many years researching that uh, it's I'm writing a book at the moment on Dickens and travel and I'm really enjoying doing that particular niche. Just one aspect of somebody's life is fascinating. Is it going to be a, a tome that I would have thought there will be a huge amount and, and more rabbit holes to go down? Well, yes, in fact, I reached my, my deadline word count um, a couple of months ago. I hope my publisher isn't listening to this and I still haven't submitted it. I'm about 20,000 words over now, um, <laughs> at least. But there's just so much to put in there. You're going and to need that editor, aren't you? <laughs> it's such a fascinating subject. I'm hoping there might be a little bit of leeway on the word count. Um, but because it's so interesting and people don't realise how much Dickens travelled. And I've always been interested in the history of travel. I've worked as a travel writer myself and I find it really fascinating how much people did travel in the past and how intrepid they had to be to get to these places. And just the physicality of how you get there. You know, Dickens had a commission to be made a special traveling coach to take all his family to live in Italy for a year. And, you know, they traveled the long route, you know, see no Eurostar, no fast trains in the, you know, 18, 1840s. So, um, yeah, really interesting. And he traveled to America twice. He traveled to Canada. 
he was planning a trip to Australia, which he didn't ever, he kept cancelling it and then replanning it and cancelling it. And sadly, he died at the age of 58. But I wish he'd got there. Two of his sons were living there. It would have been incredible. And two of his sons lived in India. I wish Dickens had gone to India, but he travelled extensively around Europe. And as I say, lived in Italy for a year, lived in Paris for months at a time, many times. Um, lived in Boulogne, uh, lived in Switzerland for several months. You know, really interesting. Mm. And all that while, tra you know, traveling through Italy at the time, you had to be careful of brigands and bandits. You know, all these things that you, that you think, read about and think, wow, this is, you know, golden age travel. Though, quite frankly, I think now is probably more of a golden age in terms of comfort. But in terms of being adventurous, it's fascinating. I love that idea of taking a long time to get there and then staying there for a long time as well. Not, not, yeah. not a two-week package tour, but actually um, moving in. Maybe not yeah. sort of the Durrells kind of extent, but yeah, a year somewhere. Exactly. Probably. He lived in a wing of a palazzo in Italy, which was so much cheaper than living in his house in London. He was in financial trouble and he rented out his home in London and moved to Italy and could live like an emperor in Italy, you know, with all his family just having this incredible year learning Italian and their cook married an Italian you know they stayed out there oh, no. <laughs> we lost it um, just these kind of wonderful little details of family life and, and the traveling around by stagecoach and yeah the, just listening to you speak about it and obviously being able to see your face because we're recording on zoom how much you love doing this just so comes across I do. And that's the thing. I know that you know, all my friends who have jobs that pay a fortune, you know, when I'm older, I'll probably be begging to live in their garage. But, um, you know, for now, I think I just love this job. It is an amazing job if you get the chance to do it. What is frustrating, though, is just how appallingly badly it's paid. And publishers have been called out a lot in recent years because advances have gone much further down. Um, in fact, a, a, an author I know who is older than me, and she said to me a couple of years ago that when she was first writing in the 1980s, you could really make a good living like anyone else. I mean, you shouldn't have to be surprised that when you're working a full-time job, you make enough to live on. And writing is far more than a full-time job. You know, you'll spend a 70, 80 hour week writing without even thinking about it. And um, she said, you know, she was really grateful that she had had the experience of being an author then and bought her home and become financially secure because although she's in her words a much more experienced and she thinks a better writer now still working still producing non-fiction and fiction the advances have got ridiculous and there's no way she could survive now as a writer and that is something that has been really highlighted in lockdown because although writing books takes up probably 70% of my working time that other 30% is the bit that earns me the money it's the speaking engagements I teach overseas students um, and all the kind of you know interviews and things and TV appearances and none of this has been able to happen in lockdown mm. and it is a really really frightening time and I just you know I do slightly despair sometimes and think how on earth am I going to continue doing this because if we continue in lockdown um, I physically won't earn enough to live on and almost every writer I know is saying that and this is something that publishers just have to address. You know, they, they seem to think that, that the author is just an inconvenience in the book publishing process. And you know, the London Book Fair is a prime example. In recent years, it has done a sterling job of trying to actually get authors to be a part of it. You know, a few years ago, I was amazed to go to the book fair for the first time and find a thing called the Author HQ, which is an area specifically for authors. 
it was the first time that had ever been done. I'd been going to the book fair for years because I started going as an editor. And I remember the very first time I went with my badge that said author instead of editor, being so proud and walking onto stands and people would literally kind of shy away from me. Oh God, because they were terrified you were going to be kind of looking for work. And, and suddenly, finally, about four or five years ago, the London Book Fair had a big sign up that said, authors, the heart of what we do. And I thought, yeah, we are. Thanks for noticing. And um, I wrote an article for the Society of Authors a couple of years ago about the fact that um, authors just are just not being paid enough to live on. And this is something the Society of Authors has been highlighting for a, a very long time. And every time you know, somebody um, buys a book, the author gets a tiny, tiny percentage. And things like literary festivals, which you know, I've always gone to and, and always assumed before I became an author that the authors get a great fat fee for appearing at. Many literary festivals, including Hay, were for years not giving the authors any fee at all. You just got your expenses. So you've got your hotel and your train paid for, your petrol. Um, and they, you know, it's great fun, but you're taking two or three days off writing and they're being paid. People are buying tickets to go and see these authors. Hay's not cheap. No, not at all. Um, and it was an Oxford famously just, you know, when the, the, I mean, most literary festivals, to be fair to them now, have started to pay a fee. Thanks largely to the amazing work of the Society of Authors, who have just done a brilliant job at campaigning. But I mean, Oxford Lit Fest about four, three or four years ago, they'd asked me to speak, which was wonderful. And then I discovered I wasn't getting a fee. And so I cancelled because nobody noticed. A couple of days later, Philip Pullman pulled out because he'd realised he was... Um, he was the chair of the festival and he discovered they weren't paying authors and it made all the newspapers and I thought literally like 48 hours ago no one noticed that I pulled out but mm. um you know and Oxford refused I don't know if they still are to be fair they may well have started paying people now but they were defiantly saying that authors didn't need to be paid because you should be grateful for the exposure absolutely and you know there was one of my friends who's a translator said to me once you know people die of exposure you know <laughs> I think great expression because you do and you know if I went into Sainsbury's and said you know I, I can't afford to pay for the food but it's gonna be really great exposure for you if I put them on my website so I'm just gonna take some things off the shelf take some photos and put it on Instagram is that all right I mean they'd just laugh I'd be you know the police would be called but that's what people expect authors and to be fair other you know other creatives artists musicians are constantly being asked to work for free because it will be good publicity but you know publicity doesn't feed your children or you know <laughs> I feel really bad, Lucinda, that I've offered you neither a fee nor any particular amount of publicity because I have about 14 listeners at the moment and you're spending half an hour of your time with me. You're also, you're also giving your time for free. <laughs> yeah, and, it's just my thing that I'm making. <laughs> and you know what? Your podcast will, you know, it's, get, it's a lot of publicity. I've, I and you have mentioned my book titles lots of times, so that's great. Um, you know, and it is, I am very happy to do charity work, for example, for free because I, there's certain charities that I really support. But I did get asked a few years ago if I would go and give a talk on my books at a famous charity, Eton College. Um, and they actually used the we're a charity for not paying. I don't think they were even gonna pay my train fare. And when I went back and said, you, know, you might have charitable status, but you're not quite a charity, in my opinion. I do actually command a fee to come and talk at schools and they, well, we couldn't possibly afford it. <laughs> I saw you speak at Also Festival a couple of years ago. Did they pay you? Yes, they did. And also our lovely festival. I would like to say that because they, um, you know, they're a little known festival. And I do think they need to be bigged up because they're very supportive of authors. And most, most festivals are, to be fair. I mean, doing a festival is great fun. And the vast majority of them do pay. They can't pay a fortune, but that's fair enough. Um, they don't earn a fortune. So it's the ones that just refuse to pay that are frustrating. 
Um, and it tends to be the biggest names that don't pay. But I do think the Society of Authors has called them out and made people realize because they've made the punches realize. And people started kind of, as is always the way with protests, you start speaking with your wallet and saying, oh, well, hang on a minute. I thought I was supporting writers. If I'm not, I'm not paying for this. I expect the event to be free. I expect to attend it. Um, and so that was good when newspapers started picking up the story and, and people were saying, well, I'm really cross that I've been paying £10 a ticket and none of it's been going to the author. Who's, who's the fat cat getting this money? So it's all you know, about that public movement, isn't it? Yeah, now that's very interesting. And you're the only person I've spoken to who I think is a writer first. Yes. I think that, that would be how you would think of yourself. Yeah, um, whereas other people are researchers and, and other things. Because they can't afford to be a writer first. And to be honest, um, you know, without my teaching, I would have been struggling a lot more the last few years. Um, it is being a writer shouldn't be a privilege, but it is because they, publishers will know that it's a vocation. And I use that word advisedly. You know, I do. If you are a writer, you have to write. And I think one of the things that is perhaps starting to worry publishers, which I'm glad about, is the prevalence of self-publishing which I have seen grow from a bit of a joke when I was young, oh, vanity publishing. And now it's not a joke at all. In fact, it's very empowering. I've not actually done it, but I definitely haven't ruled it out and I may well do so in the future because people are starting to realize that a lot of the time they don't get a very good deal from publishers. And if you are successful as a self-published author, you can do a lot better. And I, I'm, I really enjoy working with the publishers I've worked with. Um, but if I ever stop, enjoying it I absolutely would think you know what I'm going to do this by myself because now the resources are out there and that's very empowering that people have the choice you can choose to be traditionally published or you can choose to self-publish and a lot of the people are doing both which I think is equally empowering you can have the experience of both sides um, and things for example even being published by a major publisher don't be fooled into thinking that they will do the publicity for you uh, when I first got published by Random House, I was really excited. They gave me a publicist for two weeks. That was it. And then after that, it's you on Twitter. That is me. It's, yeah, all, and, and kind of contacting radio stations and contacting TV researchers. Um, and that, will, that came as a huge shock to me, and I think it will come as a shock to other people. Obviously, if you're Ian Rankin or J.K. Rowling, or, you know, then your publicist probably works with you full time. But for the vast, vast majority of writers... The publicity department is only interested in that top 2% of, of published writers. The rest of them, they're you know, the kind of lower ground ones. So you need to do all the marketing and publicity yourself. So the tools are already there for people who want to self-publish. Um, you know, and there are obviously you know, publicists and people who you can pay to do it for you, um, which like an editor, if you don't have any experience of publicity, you pay them up. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, Lucinda, I feel like I should let you get back to your writing. <laughs> You've had a good writing productive morning already, actually. I was quite pleased I woke up at six. So I'm in one of those moods of wanting to get on with it, which is fine. Right. In that case, <laughs> I will stop interrupting your flow and <laughs> let you go. Thank you Love so much that. for spending stay some time with me. Thank and you. Stay safe. And you. Thank you. Lucinda can be found on lucindahawksley.com. That's her surname is H-A-W-K-S-L-E-Y. I defy you to have listened to that and not immediately want to go and buy all of her books. She's such a lovely person and was fascinating to talk to. Um, so 
go check her out find find the books and read the books and talk to me about what you thought of the books because you can you can um, contact me on twitter as motherworldly uk on instagram as motherworldly pod and if you sign up to patreon which is motherworldly no it isn't it's patreon.com slash motherworldly then not only do you get the episodes as soon as they're made um, but you also can um, comment on the episodes and we can have a conversation about what you thought. It would be so lovely to hear about what you think. Um, thank you for listening and I'll catch up with you next week when I've got an interview with Agony Aunt Petra Boynton. <laughs>